Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire and motivate, and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Jonathan McLernan from Alberta, Canada. Jonathan has rebuilt his life from the ground up after surviving an attempted murder, nearly beaten to death in South Africa, as well as losing his life savings in a failed business venture. He has lost and kept off over 100 pounds after many failed attempts. He used to suffer from multiple anxiety episodes per day and now has less than two notable episodes per year after some dramatic lifestyle changes. Jonathan has an extremely diverse background from a nanotechnology research chemist to a Navy Marine engineer, to a globetrotting nomad. He's been in 45 countries on five continents. He's been a power line technician, a nutrition and supplemental store owner, and currently an online nutrition coach, as well as mentored to new coaches during their business from the ground up. Jonathan is Precision Nutrition Level 2 certified, along with a degree in chemistry and marketing psychology. Jonathan is also a new dad and learning how to manage a business, keeping a 15-year international marriage going, and learning how to raise a little human being. Welcome, Jonathan, to the podcast. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I have to say, sometimes when I hear that, uh, so I'm just coming up on my 40th birthday, and all of that sort of happened in the last um, 20 years. And I think when I was graduating high school, I, I grew up in a small town in, in British Columbia. That's the, the westernmost province in Canada. So just north of Washington uh, state. <clears throat> and, you know, you look back over the last 20 years and I think, man, you, you couldn't you couldn't have planned those 20 years. Tell you what. <laughs> You've been a busy guy for the last 20 years. No doubt about it. <laughs> hey, Jonathan, before we get into the nutrition and habit management segment of the podcast, I want to talk about your life before that. Yeah, uh, this this podcast features people uh, who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, and you certainly have done that. Can you tell us about the South African episode? How long were you hospitalized for, and did that happen uh, when you were in the Navy? and And how did you overcome the trauma of that? Yeah, so in in a nutshell, and I'll just share share with those who might be listening. So this, you know. Um, I'm comfortable sharing with this because I've done the work, you know, and so some people hear me speak about it and it seems like I'm pretty comfortable talking about it, but I want to say it's because I went through the work, the trauma counseling and so on to be able to get to the place where I can. Sure. Um, so we were traveling around the world, my wife and I, 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 was, I had left the Navy at that point in time. I was on what was called the, the supplemental reserve. So I was still connected to the military, but uh, had no, no obligations to them other than um, being a good human being, I guess. So yeah. anyways, <clears throat> we went from living in Poland to, uh, heading down to South Africa because we'd met a South African uh, fellow in our travels. And he said, Hey, my parents are running this um, not-for-profit organization, helping underprivileged youth. Would you like to come down and, and do some teaching down there? Cause you already have teaching experience and you guys would be a really great fit. So um, we ended up going down to uh, South Africa and doing that. And it was really only um, two weeks after we had arrived down there and we'd already started working and we were working on this nature reserve. So it's kind of like a national park or this was a, like a state park, I guess. And uh, you know, fences, you know, rhinos, giraffes, monkeys, whatever, you know, sure. wildlife on this rangers, all that kind of stuff. And we were out and sort of in this educational center somewhere in the middle of the reserve. So it was, you know, probably a 20 minute drive from the road to get into this. And it was already out kind of in the middle of nowhere, about half an hour drive from, from the nearest city. <clears throat> so we're living out on this reserve. 
And uh, it was just, it was in August. And so in the Southern hemisphere, that's wintertime. So they got right. short days. And so I'm walking back to the instructor's cabin, which is tucked away in the bushes, probably about 200, 300 feet away from where the dining hall is, where everybody else is. So that's a couple of buildings away and I'm by myself. And when I get there, the door is slightly ajar and, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere, we're on a park, it's got range and stuff. not thinking anything of it. Like it didn't occur to me that this is, you know, something is off here. Yeah. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, um, open the door. There's three guys in the cabin and they'd actually been sat down at the table and they're eating these uh, hard biscuits. They're called rusks and dipping them in, in rooibos tea, which is a, a type of South, a tea they drink in South Africa. Yeah. Rubio's. And, yeah. yeah. So it, it didn't, it didn't click that like something was off here. It still should have, but I looked at the face of one of the guys and I was like, oh, I recognize him. He's one of the Rangers, but he's not in uniform. So that, that should have. You know, of course, it's all hindsight, right? That should have triggered something, but it didn't. For some reason, I thought maybe there was something wrong in the cabin and these other two guys are here helping to fix it. Sure. You know, because it was a Monday and we go away for the weekends to come back. So I was like, maybe maybe the, the guy, the weekend facilitator had, had reported issuing the cabin. That's the kind of stuff that was running through my head. Now, I didn't see the fourth guy. He was outside the cabin. It was dark out, right? Right. And all of a sudden, I get a crack across the head with a rock. And, wow. uh, and all of a sudden, I'm now I'm trying to probably what the heck is going on here? Like, you know, and, and then um, the, the other three guys kind of jumped up. I remember this guy had the rock. He grabbed me by the, like the scruff of my shirt. And I, I remember him smiling and, and saying, shh, as he's swinging this rock at my head again and cracked me again. And so now I'm, I'm concussed because this guy is swinging with everything he's got at my head. And I stumble and I, I fall down and then blood starting to pour down my face. Like the forehead bleeds pretty easily. And these guys just basically jump on me and just start kicking and stomping. And, you know, they're, they're in this to just beat me to death. And the truth is they did, they did this to a, night, uh, a guy the night before. Um, I didn't know this at the time. All, wow. all I knew was like, these guys, like, I need to get out of here. I'm trying to stay alive tonight kind of thing. Right. Right. And so I managed to, I'm a pretty big guy and I managed to, to sort of fight my way to kind of like my hands and my knees and, and, and sort of get, to, get sort of to my feet and, and start stumbling and staggering towards the dining hall where everybody else was. And for some reason they didn't pursue me. I don't know why they could have, it wasn't like I was moving very quickly. Right. I'm kind of stunned and staggering, you know, but I think they, they decided to go to the dorms because there's a dormitory building there as well. And just start ransacking the dorms. I don't know they're high on drugs, like and stealing yeah, a bunch of stuff that, that must have been, you know. And so I, I get there and I'm like blood streaming down my face and I'm staggered and you know I'm like I've been attacked. Uh, I don't know how many guys are out there and all of this. Now that, you know, kind of panic just erupts in this building. All of our students are in there and they're all between the ages of like 18 and 30. So they're they're not really teenagers. They're but they're young adults and they've all been through stuff like this before and it freaks them out, right? Uh, like they've all been traumatized by stuff like this before, and wow. so. Anyways, my wife was like really brave in all of this because she's one of the, you know, one of the other facilitators in this, you know, and she got all the women organized because she'd been self-defense training before and stuff. And, you know, she started to get them boiling water. They pushed a fridge against one of the doors. She's arming them with frying pans and whatever they can find, basically, because we don't know how many are out there. They travel and they could travel in packs of 15 or 20 for all we know. And uh, I'm kind of just slumped over on the floor, you know, leaning against the cupboard, really holding a fork in my hand, because for some reason in my sort of concussed and, and dazed state, I was going to defend myself with a fork or something. And so one of the students still had a cell phone with them. And for whatever reason, like we had a really weak signal, but they were able to get a call to the police station. And it just so happened to be that a senior police officer was walking by this office when a phone rang and decided to pick the phone up. So all of these really sort of like very like, you know, uh, like narrow coincidences that led to them dispatching the police. Cause a lot of times that, that would have just been ignored, like right. whatever. 
And so, but they still had, that's a 45 minute drive for the police to get out there. And the way that you get on the nature reserve, you can see like the entrance across a valley, right? You know, yeah. you can't see that. So you could see the flashing lights in the dark 20 minutes before they ever get there. Cause they got to drive down the valley and back up the other side to get to where we are. So these guys that were like robbing us and had beaten me, they're just, 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 you know, wander off into the bushes. Cops get oh. there and uh, they're like, okay, nobody died. Cool. We're going to leave. And my wife was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? She's like, my husband nearly died. Um, you know, you guys aren't leaving and we're not, you're not leaving until we leave. We're not staying here tonight. We don't know how many there are out there and, and all of this. And uh, so again, she was really like fired up and <laughs> I got to give her credit. You know, she was incredibly brave in all of this. Um, and so anyways, we ended, we ended up leaving because we've been trapped in the building for about 40 minutes with them trying to break down the doors. I kind of skipped over that detail as well. They're trying to bash down the doors with shovels and get in and whatnot. Like it was, it was a really like a pretty terrifying experience. Um, and I think running through my head was I can't die tonight. And I hope they don't have guns because if they had guns, they would have just shot us through the windows, like sitting ducks, Yeah, you know? And so uh, that's going through experience like that. So I ended up I just over overnight in the hospital. Like I was concussed. They didn't break any ribs. They didn't stab me. They had a knife and they, they dropped it. And one of the cops was just walking by and grabs it bare hand. And it's like, obviously this guy didn't watch CSI or something because yeah. no thought of like, Hey, I should put on a glove, you know, pick it up delicately by the tip, that kind of thing. Try not to contend. They didn't care. It doesn't work yeah. like that there. Yeah. No. So in most of the world, like we don't, we don't realize how fortunate we are to have like a pretty competent, highly trained, you know, police force in most places that we live in North America. Yeah. You know, we might have issues with them, but right. they care. They're still going right. to respond. They're pretty competent down there they're just trying to collect a paycheck and not get hurt yeah that's that's what it is um and so so kind of the follow-up from that really is is um like nothing really prepares you to go through an experience like that and for me my my coping mechanism because once you go through a traumatic incident my experience you know i was reliving the incident over and over again and it's it's as i understand it it's an attempt to rewrite the story of what happened if I knew this, I would have done that. If I knew this, I would have done that and so on and trying to, to change the narrative. But every time you relive the story, I'd relive the story. I'm kind of re-traumatizing myself. And we stayed on in South Africa for another four months. And uh, there was about a dozen other incidents that happened. None quite as violent as this one, but like unhealed trauma, you just start to layer more and more layers of trauma on top of it. And by the end of it, I think it was probably on the verge of like a nervous breakdown um, I think I was getting ready. I, I probably would have killed somebody. Like I was really getting into this very distressed state of mind because it just feels like constantly under attack. And I, I look back now and like, I knew a part of my brain knew, like we have to get out of this situation because something's happening to me. Like that, that I'm really uncomfortable with, uh, because I'm a pretty, you know, anybody who meets me, like I'm a pretty easygoing guy. Like I yeah. like most, most people that I meet and here I was having like these really sort of angry, intrusive, like, like violent and vengeful thoughts coming into my head. And I was really distressed by it. I didn't want this, but they were coming anyways. And uh, so I knew that like when I was having these thoughts of like, you know, because they break into our, your place, uh, the, the, like people get robbed there all the time. They're, it doesn't matter. Six foot fence with razor wire doesn't matter. They're coming over that. They're going through the roof, whatever. They're going to get into your house. Right. And it just feels like you're relentless, like you're relentlessly under attack. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very difficult place to live. Yeah. And I so, was, I was actually there. Uh, I was in uh, the Cape town area. Okay. And, yeah. Uh, and Johannesburg and uh, yeah. beautiful country, but oh, yeah, sure we, 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 we did see, we, we did see what you're talking about. You know, it, well, it, yeah, it's, it's out in the open. Yeah. 
you know, and, and, and between Cape Town and the airport, like you don't want to have a breakdown or get a flat tire because you drive past one of the most dangerous slums in South Africa between the city of Cape Town, which is very beautiful and the airport. Yeah. And so we were, yeah, we were very, very glad to uh, get out of there at a certain point in time because, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's extremely traumatic. And so for me, I turned to food as a coping mechanism, really. Okay. So there was, there was a part and it wasn't like I did it consciously or deliberately, just what I started doing, Right. you know? it's like the way that the brain works is, you know, you're under, uh, under duress or stress or something, you eat some food, it makes that duress temporarily go away. And the brain learns a behavior. When I eat this, this happens, you know, when I feel this, I eat this and then I feel better. And so thus is born this effect. And so, you know, at a certain point, it's like, well, I want to feel better more often than I want to feel like crap. So right. I keep eating food. Right. And, you add to that sort of the trauma, like the shame of what had happened. Um, there's all these kind of layers to it, you know, sort of trying to convince some people that it wasn't that big a deal and, and trying to con- explain to other people the severity of it because other people like they treat trauma like a bit of like a pissing contest, you know, like, oh, that's nothing. You should hear what happened to so-and-so. And it's like, this is not what trauma is about. And so it, it's, there's all of these sort of subtle details. And as I look back, I'm like, wow, I wish like, I had met with somebody who maybe had some experience in trauma, who had been through something, who had come out the other side, who could have like helped me out and shown me some compassion in that situation because really I didn't have that. And so, you know, I went through probably six or seven years of real struggle with my mental health. And like my wife, she's a trooper. Like she we're we're coming up on her 15th anniversary. She still loves me more than the day we, we met. And you know, That's she's great. still with me in, in all of this. And, you know, she stuck it out when I was going through all this, all of this like turmoil. And she saw me like when she met me for, you know, 17 years ago, I was in pretty good shape getting set to go to boot camp. Like I was, you know, sure. and, uh, you know, now she's with me and I'm 330 pounds and struggling with my mental health and struggling with my sleep. And so, you how, know, how many pounds did you, when you went to the, when you went to food, how many pounds did you gain? Uh, probably about, I would say a hundred and probably 115, 120. Wow. 150, 120 pounds. That's a lot. Yeah. I would have went from about 215 to about 330. Wow. To 330. Yep. Can, can you, t- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say that happened over about a six month span. Six months. Yeah. Wow. It's, it doesn't take long to gain that kind of weight, does it? Well, not when you're not when you're because I was binge eating as well. Yeah. Right. So yeah. not when you're binge eating high calorie density foods, not sleeping, super high stress. Like it, it's like the perfect storm for like driving my body to store fat rapidly. And yeah. I, I have a genetic predisposition towards it. Like I look at like my family and my like most people in my family have grappled with obesity on both sides of my family. Right. So there, there's, you know, I could say, and also I'm a big guy, like I'm six one. I'm not, I'm not a, and I have a big frame. Like, I, I would make like probably a good linebacker or, or something in football if I was yeah. a little bit younger. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you hear those numbers and it's like, you know, it would look different if I was say five foot six and start out at 160 pounds kind of thing, but I was yeah. already like, I'm already a pretty big guy. Yeah. Um, but the, the weight just started piling on. And then you go through the, the other part of it is like sort of denial of what's happening because I'm going from being athletic to being like obese. And yeah. there's, there's a whole shift that takes place there to this whole loss of identity or just denial of the fact that I felt like I was an athlete trapped in a fat body. And like, so it, it was very, very convoluted in a sense, very messy emotionally and mentally. Is this when the anxiety attacks were taking place as well? 
Yeah. And, you know, probably I didn't realize what it was at first. And uh, because I was also using a lot of stimulants to try to lose weight, which is not a good idea. So I was getting into like, you know, caffeine and ephedrine and a few other things that people shouldn't be using and shouldn't be. But again, at that time, I was so desperate to lose the weight now because I was so incredibly unhappy being obese. And so it was just like I was I was redlining my nervous system. And eventually the nervous system goes, you can't take you can't do this anymore. And I was I had gotten into powerlifting. So I think that was another maybe sort of compensatory thing. I'm going to get big and like even bigger and stronger so that if somebody tries to do this. I want to take time out of the podcast to tell you about one of our guests' latest books he has written, which really made an impression on me after reading it. The book is titled The Power of Consistency by James Burns. James has almost 40 years experience working as an administrator, teacher, college instructor, and a seminar leader. He has received honors for his work in the area of anti-bullying. He brings his years of teaching and life experiences to the forefront in regard to this book. The book guides us to 12 things we should all start doing and keep doing every day on a consistent basis to become our personal best. Things that are done consistently help us realize our full potential, whatever that potential is. Whether it's physical, mental, emotional, or even spiritual, when things are done over and over again, we become better individuals in many areas of our life. Let's be clear, consistency is doing things for the good and are referred to in that sense in the book. Habits can be good or bad and can be done consistently as well. But when we think of a habit, it is usually a bad one that we have done consistently that we are trying to break. The beauty of doing things consistently is that we don't have to do a lot. Things just have to be done for short periods of time, on most days, if not every day. The book provides 12 great ideas that anyone can and should use. And when they are put into motion and are done consistently, they can help you become your personal best. After reading the book, the 12 great ideas that James recommends we all do every day are easy to do, will not overwhelm us, and make so much sense that most of us have just overlook them in the hustle, bustle of our modern day lives. It is said the secret of your future is hidden in your daily routine. To be successful at anything, you don't have to be different. You simply have to be what most people aren't, consistent. What a great gift idea this book would make for your friends and family. They absolutely will thank you. It is a short, easy read. The book is available in ebook version for $3.99 and paperback for $9.99 through Amazon. Ebook version is available through Kindle, Nook, Apple, and Kobo. The information pertaining to the book, The Power of Consistency, will be listed in the podcast notes, Facebook page and group, and podcast website. To me again, you know, so I was really stressing my nervous system hard. Also, at that point, at this point, I'm trying to run a business, you know, um, for 14 hours a day kind of thing. So I was really dry myself in the ground because kind of male pattern of behavior, at least what I'm seeing was, you know, just push harder. If you're not getting the results you want, you're not trying hard enough. Like what a, what a broken and unhelpful mindset I was stuck in, but that's, that's what I was doing. I was driving myself into the ground. Can can you tell us about your anxiety recovery going from multiple uh, anxiety episodes per day to less than two uh, notable episodes per year? What lifestyle changes uh, had the biggest impact on your anxiety recovery. 
Yeah. And I would say that that sort of recovery took place over a span of about three years. So okay. people will hear that and maybe think like this was, I know, a couple of months sort of thing. It really, so I was waking up multiple times a night and those who have anxiety will understand like one of the worst parts of anxiety is the fear of when the next episode is coming. Cause you don't know, or it feels like you don't know. So I, I, I do have a science background. And so I, I started and I tried a couple of medications. I've been prescribed a couple of different medications and I really didn't like it because they made me feel like a zombie. Yeah. And a part of me goes, you know, and this is not me knocking anybody who requires a medication there. They can be very, very helpful in the right circumstances sure. by all means. For me, it was like, I would take it and be a zombie for 12 hours. And I was like, I cannot live my life like this. And I would rather go through a 45 minute anxiety episode than be a zombie for 12 hours. Cause at least I know, you know, the anxiety episode is going to be up in less than an hour. Like your nervous system just can't sustain it for, for all that long. It's really unpleasant, but, and so, um, I started looking at everything I was doing that was triggering my nervous system. That was, that was adding to my, my stress load. So yeah. like my weightlifting training. So I actually stopped going to the gym for six months. The only activity I did in that six months was walking and it wasn't power walking. It wasn't walking for weight loss. It was just walking right. to decompress whenever, whenever possible walking in nature, I cut out all stimulants, caffeine, chocolate, anything that contains caffeine or chocolate because chocolate contains a stimulant similar to caffeine. Um, I started to prioritize sleep over everything else. And I had my wife's support in this. So I was like, I have to have to prioritize my sleep. So I made sure that I was getting eight hours a night. Um, I cut way back on what was happening in the business. Now the business ultimately failed and that's another part of the story. Um, but I just, I started standing up for myself and I started setting boundaries and setting boundaries on my energy and how much I would sort of deplete myself for other people. Cause I work in a in, in a service-based industry, whether it was nutritional supplements or the coaching that I do, which involves sort of giving a lot of myself. So I really set some boundaries around when I'll interact with people and not, and so on. And so I wouldn't say that there was any one driving factor, but each one of these things kind of started to chip away at it, you know? Um, and then I took up uh, meditation and really just a very, very basic form, some basic breathing exercises. And I think sometimes like me both meditation and breathing exercises get a little bit misunderstood too. For me, it was really just about like slow breathing to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And so you, you add all of these things up and it just gradually starts to chip away and start to gain more confidence. Um, there was a, there's a really helpful book that I read from a, a gentleman, Duff, the psych, um, it, he has a series of books called the hardcore self-help series. And he explains anxiety and depression in very colorful language. Um, but intended for the lay, lay person audience yeah. and understand for me, it was really helpful to understand what was happening in my brain as well. So then anxiety became less of something that I feared because I knew now it was happening in my brain and my body when something was taking place. So this is kind of like a brain-driven weight loss. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of this is this is kind of what led me to like what I do now or what, what I, I I coin it like brain-driven weight loss. When I work with somebody in the realm of weight loss, like the way that we've and we're shifting gears a bit here, but you know I look at my own struggles with my weight and it was you know people wonder well, how long did it take you to lose hundred pounds and I'm like well probably six or seven years. <laughs> and in that span, I could probably say I lost more like 600 pounds because I'd lost and gained weight so many times yeah. trying so many different things. So much of what we still know around weight loss or believe to be true around weight loss is this outside in approach. I'm going to impose these things on me to try to force some kind of change to happen. And that cannot create lasting change. Lasting change is an internal function that takes place. 
And so it was when I started working with a coach who took this kind of inside out approach that really showed me and, and helped me to get to, to keeping the weight off for good. But it showed me the kind of thing that, that this industry needed badly because we're still being told, you know, um, use these supplements to burn the fat, use this magic meal plan, go on this, whatever name diet is and so yeah. on. These things aren't addressing why we do the things that we do. This is not an information issue. This is not a knowledge issue. This comes from a different part of the brain. And once I started to understand that and work with people in that fashion, it was like, oh my gosh, we're onto something here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You talk about uh, positive masculinity, something you're passionate yeah. about. Can, can you tell our audience what you mean by yeah. that? Yeah, and I feel like, and to be fair, I feel like I'm still kind of in, in my own infancy in terms of learning about this, maybe this movement, this idea, this ideal. But what I feel is that when we hear the term masculinity, so very often it's connected to the word toxic. Now I understand why that is, because there are certain behaviors that we see in the masculine sphere that are very unhelpful, dangerous, problematic, and so on. But very rarely do we hear talked about the positive aspects of masculinity, or do we see someone being given a, a positive ideal to work towards? And, you know, I grew up a child of the eighties. And so you think my, my, examples were like Homer Simpson and Rambo. Like what, what was, what was, there was no in between there. It was either you're this the super muscular, hyper masculine, yeah. unpenetrable superhero or this slobbish doofus yeah. that everybody liked because you're a threat to nobody. You're just this harmless goofball. Right. There was no, there was no real in between there. And so that kind of lays the foundation. And then you think about, you know, uh, men don't cry and don't express emotions and emotions are weakness and things like that. So I had all these sort of problematic things that, that I'd been conditioned with around masculinity as well. And, you know, now what we see the advent of social media over the last decade or so in particular, and really the ability of people to sort of amplify their voices and stories to be heard. And it's giving power to the average person to speak up about bad things that have happened to them. It's definitely led to this pushback against, you know, what we could call toxic masculine behaviors, but I'd like to see that pendulum swing back a little bit because it's not as though I don't believe that masculinity is inherently damaging or harmful. I believe there's certain behaviors in the spectrum of masculinity that are problematic that need to be addressed and need to be called out. But there's also some amazing and wonderful aspects of masculinity that are, are that really should be celebrated. And so I'm trying to educate myself more about this and really advocate for this because I feel like I was stuck in this pattern of un unhelpful behavior in terms of how I treated myself you know, work right. harder, try harder, push harder, sleep less, drive yourself into the ground. And it was really when I started to show myself compassion, it was really somebody else modeled for me what compassion looks like, that it's not actually weakness. It's not enabling unhelpful behaviors, but it's more about understanding behaviors. Well, then for me, that opened a door and it's like, you know, it's okay to have feelings. It's okay to have emotions. It's, it's right. a part of being human. And right. so really opening the door to that discussion and saying that masculinity is not inherently bad. And in fact, it can be a really wonderful thing if we give men something really positive to aspire to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, Jonathan, what, what drew you to the nutrition business? Um, probably, I, I feel like I stumbled into it kind of by accident in a sense. So I had a previous business that had failed. Unfortunately, my business partner had his infant daughter pass away tragically at six months and he went off the rails and that business failed and that cost me quite a bit of money. 
that wasn't the biggest failure, this next business. So I had this friend who had set up a nutrition and supplement store with another business partner and they were having kind of this falling out. And I was like, well, I don't want to see my friend's business fail. I think he has something good here. So I just started helping him out on the side, keeping in mind, I have a background in chemistry and marketing psychology. So actually kind of was tailor-made for the supplement industry without me realizing it. Yeah. And so I would go on my days off. I was working in the oil patch at the time. And so we work a rotation of 15 days on six days off. And on my days off, I would go and help out at the store. And people kept asking for me at the store when I wasn't there because I'm, I'm really well educated about supplements. And I was kind of started to build this reputation as a supplement guru. So eventually I stepped away from working in the oil patch and running that business full-time and invested in that business. And um, I, I, I said, I became a bartender without alcohol. Like <laughs> people would come to the supplement counter and we'd talk and, you know, I, I would find that, you know, you're looking for the supplement to help for this thing. And that supplement isn't going to help you. It's, it's not going to help you in the way that you want. So I can sell that supplement to you, you know, but I'm going to tell you what it will do. And I'm going to tell you all the limitations. You're asking it to do more than it can. Sure. You need to do this. And so that really kind of got me into this coaching thing. And then I thought, well, I'm kind of a natural coach. I've been a teacher and a coach most of my life from the time I was 13 coaching um, grade eight basketball to all the way up to, um, you know, teaching and educating internationally. So I, I, this is kind of, this is kind of what I do just by yeah. nature. And so, so it was I a good thought, fit. It was a good fit for you. Yeah. So I so, said, well, I need, I need to formalize this. And so, so I did, I got my first certification through precision nutrition. What I've I'd had a personal training certification um, previous to that. I'd had this idea many years ago, actually, that I wanted to pair some kind of nutrition with personal training and create some kind of lifestyle coaching back in 2012. So like 10 years ago, Yeah. but I never did anything with it because I didn't, I didn't feel like anybody would listen to me. And I didn't know how to make a business of it, but it was, I, I could, you know, even back then I could kind of see it. There's, there's, there's yeah. something here. People need help and they're not getting it in some way. So it was, it was quite a few years. It was kind of me falling backwards into this that eventually got me doing this where now I've you know turned into a full-time business where, and, and now I'm even at the point where I'm also teaching other people how to build their businesses because I believe that you know, entrepreneurship is the way forward for a lot of people. And not only that, like the online world is really promising for, for many people. It's a great marketplace. Sure. In 2018, uh, you venture into the online nutrition and coaching. What is the first reason people seek your services? The, I think the first reason people reach out is because they want to lose weight. Okay. Um, and they, they resonate with my stories. So they hear that I've lost hundred pounds. The first question is like, well, how'd you do that? Because I want to lose 50, 40, 30, 60, 80, whatever number of pounds. I want to lose this weight. I've tried before and I haven't succeeded. You have succeeded in doing something I want to do, but haven't succeeded in. There must be something, you know, that I don't know. Now, my, my secret in a sense, <laughs> I'd like to say is that side effects might include weight loss. In other words, for me, weight loss is a doorway. It's not a destination. So when we understand, yes, you want to lose weight, but it isn't really about a number on the scale, right? It's about a quality of life thing. For me, I want to be able to play with my kid. I want to be like on the floor and roll around with him. Um, I'm an older dad. I'm going to be 50. He's going to be 10, 11. You know, I, I want to still be active in his life. I don't want to be like, sorry, kid, I got to sit on the couch because, you know, I can't right. move. So really um, getting people to understand again, it's not about telling people to eat more vegetables. It's not about shaming people for their, oh, you dummy, why'd you eat that pizza? You know, it's not good for you. That doesn't help people. So really the work that I do kind of goes a lot deeper than that. 
And this is how we create, because if we want to create permanent weight loss, because that should be everybody's goal. I want to lose the weight and keep it off. That's right. Now, the idea behind a diet was I'll just do this diet until I lose the weight and it'll stay off for good. But it doesn't, if you're, doesn't work that way. Right. If you're not a transformed person, you go back to your old habits and behaviors. And right. so really the work is in how do you become a transformed person? How do you become comfortable with doing that? And so that really is kind of what, what my work has evolved into. Well, can, can you tell us your approach to weight loss and, and kind of reference like the meal plans and habits? Tell us the habits that, that clients struggle with the most. Oh, the, the, the number one habit is going to be like eating at night, eating junk food at night. Okay. <laughs> That's, and that makes perfect sense from a brain's perspective, right? Because you think about it throughout the course of the day, we use um, our prefrontal cortex. We, we often call that like the front of our mind. And that's yeah. really true. Actually, that's, that's the front part. It's by our forehead. That's the part of our brain where we, we weigh the consequences of our behavior. And we start to think, well, do I want to do this? Yes, no, whatever. But that's a really sort of mentally taxing process to do. So the way that our brain works is we often want to shut that part of it out and we want to automate behaviors. So for example, if you've ever driven from one place to another, and maybe you've done this drive many times and you get there this one time and you go, oh my gosh, I don't remember driving here. And somehow I got here safely. Said, yeah, because that pattern has been formed in your brain and you've done it so many times. It's automatic. That's what our brain does is it takes behaviors that we repeat and it makes them automatic. It makes it so we can do it without having to think about it consciously. That's a really necessary thing. Cause could you imagine if we had to consciously think about tying our shoes or lifting our fork to our mouth? Like we could never function or get anything done. So it's a sure. really cool aspect of our brain. Problem is it works for good behaviors and bad behaviors. <laughs> and so, yeah. But knowing this is how our brain works. It's like, we want to work with our brain the way it works. So maybe I'd like to juxtapose this a little bit with, and I've kind of already touched on the way that traditional weight loss approaches. Usually it's going to be strict food rules, restrictive meal plans, um, expensive supplement regimes. Uh, it's kind of like trying to force somebody into a straight jacket. In other words, you are flawed the way you are. You can't control yourself. So we're going to put you in a straight jacket to force control on you. Now, you're, what you're doing in this process is you're trying to unnaturally force weight loss to happen. You're trying to force people to fight against their brain, the urges that reside within their brain. And then on top of that, we layer judgment and shame and coercion and guilt and really like this terrible coaching to try to force people to do things. And so when I created my program, which I call Lifestyle 180, at its core, I wanted to marry three things, the science of metabolism, the psychology of behavior change, and the compassion of human connection. Now, each one of these things matters because yes, what we eat in our metabolism matters and we can adjust it. It's not broken, but we want to understand how do we form behavior patterns? And that's where the psychology of behavior change comes in. We also want the compassion of human connection because in the process of trying to create change, we're going to fall into old behavior patterns. We're going to struggle. We're going to slip up. We're going to make mistakes. It's a part of trying to create change. In all of this, we're actually empowering somebody to reverse engineer their own healthy lifestyle. So what I mean by that is when somebody comes to work with me, I'm going to treat them like an expert. So you are the expert of your life and okay. your life experience. Now I'll bring my expertise in nutrition science and change psychology, but we need both to successfully create change. You can't just follow my rules. If you just follow my rules, you're going to fail the moment I'm not in your life. So instead what we do, and, and here's the other thing, if we try to put 20 rules on you starting today, you're going to fail. You can't implement 20 different changes at one time. That's not how our brain works. You'll get overwhelmed, you'll get tired, and you'll revert back to your old behavior patterns and think you're a failure. So instead, we, we start with a high leverage principle. Let's say one of them is called EMS or eliminate mindless snacking. 
You start with something like that. Once that's established as a behavior pattern, we now put the next layer on and the next layer on and so on. So we optimize somebody's metabolism. We optimize their digestion. And then we get into optimizing, their, say, the nutrient density of what they eat and so on. But by doing it in this sort of layered approach where the individual um, takes a practice and they shape it and make it their own, and they have an active hand in doing this, now they're reverse engineering their lifestyle. I'm a guide. I'm not a Sherpa. In other words, you still right. got to carry your backpack and do the work, but I'm right. going to help you make them. I'm going to help you do the most effective and most efficient work, knowing that it's going to lead you to creating change. So that's it's a bit of word salad trying to explain it, but uh, no, really, I understand. Yeah, I understand where this, you're this coming how our brain from. Brain works. Yeah, yeah, and you're trying to get into to what you know how they operate. You know, absolutely before, before you ever met them, you want to know how yeah. they operate. Yeah, yeah, where well, did this come from? Yeah. What non-food and non-exercise factors are most crucial in weight loss? I'm going to say the nervous system that nobody, <laughs> we, we almost never really talk about like the nervous system as a system in the body. Yeah. And you think about everything that affects it from stress and sleep. So the, if your nervous system doesn't function well, your digestion doesn't function well. And when your digestion doesn't function well, you don't absorb nutrition from your food. So you could be eating the most nutritious food in the world, but if you're not breaking down and digesting and absorbing from it, it's, it's almost a waste. I don't want to say it's completely a waste, but it almost is. And so we need to look at, so we, and we normalize stress. We wear stress like a badge of honor in, you know, in, in modern life. And we should not do that because it's, it's killing us, Yeah, you know? Um, and so if we, if we could view things from the perspective of the nervous system, even just a little bit, instead of just, uh, looking at like, I want to lose fat. I think we would see weight loss entirely differently. How do, how do you make uh, healthy eating faster and easier than <laughs> say fast food? Um, well, think about this. Uh, I mean, I guess in one sense, it's been made easier by like skip the dishes and Uber eats and stuff like that. But you still have to pay a, uh, you know, extra markup for that. And you still have to wait 30 minutes for it to get to your, to your door. But even if you go to the drive-thru, you're, you might be spending 10 or 15 minutes like waiting. In the, I, I don't know if, you know, we have a, a coffee chain called Tim Hortons here. It'd be like Dunkin' Donuts. Something. The drive-through lineups are insane, especially in the mornings and the afternoons. Like really? Yeah, we have that too here. Yeah. And so I think to, I, I do what I call, I outsource my cooking to my appliances. In other words, I choose appliances that really, I don't have to monitor stuff. So I've got a rice cooker. I've got a slow cooker. I've got an instant pot. I've got an oven, um, an air fryer. So these appliances, I can put stuff in there, push the buttons, it does the cooking and I can walk away. Right. So if you think about a basic healthy meal, it's not rocket science. You're probably going to have a, a good quality, like lean protein. Um, you're probably going to have some vegetables in there and you're probably going to have a quality carbohydrate and maybe some flavorings and things. So let's just say I could put a batch of quinoa in the rice cooker, flick start, you know, it takes 30 seconds to put you know, a cup of quinoa and two cups of water in there and flick start. I could take a tray of frozen vegetables. Just we call it California blend up here, you know, carrots, yeah. broccoli, cauliflower, throw that in a glass tray, put some cooking spray on there, sprinkle some seasoning, put it in the oven for 25, 25 minutes, walk away. You know, maybe I put some, uh, some pork chops in the air fryer and just hit start, you know, for 20 minutes, let it, let it cook and render off the fat and that kind of thing. None of those things require me to go back and look at them. You know, once I have the time, you know, once I know the time and temperature, literally just so five to maybe 10 minutes of prep work and I can walk away and come back in half an hour and I got a meal made for me. Yeah. Gotcha. Just like fast food. Only 
you're doing much it better. And, and, yeah. and not only that, like when you look at like the cost proportion size, because I, I did a lot of math on this because I'm an old, I'm a numbers nerd too. <laughs> and I figured out that for less than $3, um, I could make this really healthy meal with healthy portion size. So less than $3 a serving. And you think about it, if you go to McDonald's, even nowadays, I mean, and then they're, they're usually like the lowest cost of the fast food joints. Um, a McDouble is probably like two to three bucks now. He had, you know, you add in fries and a drink. So you can make a healthy meal for less than that. You don't have to wait in a drive through lineup. And like, so now, but it does require just a little bit of advanced prep. So my freezer is always stocked with frozen vegetables. Why? Because they're already cut up. They've locked in the freshness because they're picked at peak ripeness and flash frozen. So actually really like, and then I roast them at high temperature so they don't turn as mushy. You know, if you, you don't, don't boil them to death because it's gross, you yeah. know, ro- roast them with some flavor on them or something, you know, that kind of thing. Um, cause I think we have this idea around healthy cooking that it takes a lot of time and you have to be in the kitchen all this time you have to be chopping all these vegetables. Ugh. No, I'm, I'm like, I'm like a systems engineer. So I'm like, let's just figure out how we can make this as effortless and efficient as possible. Because the truth is we don't rise. This is a quote from James Clear from Atomic Habits. So I don't want to steal the credit for it. We don't rise to the level of our aspirations. We fall to the level of our systems and habits. That's how our brain works. So mm-hmm. we can have all these lofty goals. Oh, I'm going to eat all this healthy food. I'm going to get healthy. And oh, it feels great to be thinking about this. But the truth is when push comes to shove, we're going to devolve into our basic habits and routines and patterns. And so if we make healthy eating easy, like, ah, oh, grab my, my, my two, my two pork chops that I've already got in the Ziploc bag in the freezer, put those in the air fryer or in, in the instant pot, you know, um, put the frozen vegetables in the oven, put the rice in the rice cooker, that kind of thing. Like it, it's just, I've made it so easy that I really can't I have no excuse for not making a healthy meal. And yeah. I, I, I get variety from all kinds of different seasonings that I use. I have 25 different spice blends. Like, like how can you not get novelty from that? And, you know, I rotate through maybe five or six different types of meat and so, and so on. Right. You do that enough times. You won't want to go to that uh, fast food place. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you, you have said that there is an art and science to the nutrition coaching process. And you look at four categories. Can you tell our audience again, what are those four categories? Yeah, I think each one of these, there's a lot of subcategories underneath these, but I think if we look at stress, um, sleep, nutrition, and activity. Okay. And we, and we, we expand underneath each one of those categories and we can look at like different layers for different people, but you take care of those four factors and you're going to become healthy. The, so that's, there's the science aspect of it and that's understanding how the body works and how to sort of maximize the potential of the body. The art of it is how do you, how do you convince somebody that's worth it to go through this? Because the truth is change is hard and it's uncomfortable and it's not fun. Our brain wants us to stay stuck in old patterns and behaviors because it's more efficient. It requires less energy. So really the art of coaching is being able to take a piece of information because I, I don't believe I have a monopoly on any kind of information. I have a unique way of presenting it and making it relevant to the individual. And I think that's where the art is. You can go to Google and find a million different free meal plans, a million different diet plans, like literally probably millions of them. You know, we live in the information age. Right. Remember, this is not an information problem. This is an implementation problem. How do we take this, make it relevant to us in such a way that we actually want to do this? So you really need to motivate. Motivation is is part of this, right? Yes. Now, the only reason I hesitate ever so slightly is because I think motivation is a little bit overrated. Okay. So motivation says I have to feel a certain way before I can take an action. Now, if you try to make that the foundation of your plan for success, you're going to fail because you're not always going to be motivated and feel like it. 
so yes, I think it's important that like I have what I, I call my emotionally compelling reason. And I think everyone needs to unlock their emotionally compelling reason. So for me, for example, now it's my son, you know, uh, before it was, I want to be a dad and I want to be healthy enough to be a dad and, and so on. So let's just say I'm going through Costco, for example, big warehouse, you know, store, yep. big jumbo size portions. Sure. And remember, I'm a former binge eating food addict. Those, those things sort of still reside in my brain. <laughs> um, I navigate them differently. But I think sometimes there's this idea, and I share this because I, I don't want people to think some I've got all figured out and it's per- I'm, I'm, I'm perfect. No, I, I kind of have the brain of an addict still. It's like an alcoholic, you know, probably doesn't buy a house across from a liquor store. <laughs> You know, right, right. like I, I recognize the tendencies of my brain and say, I'm going to set things up in a way that just make it less likely I'm going to be triggered and fall into these old behavior patterns. Um, but to go back to this emotionally compelling reason. So let's just say I see this big giant bag of uh, corn chips at, at Costco. That's ridiculously cheap because of these giant portion sizes. And I really like corn chips and salsa. And my, my, my binge eating brain goes, oh my gosh, I'd love to smash that entire bag. You yeah. Know? And, and it's like four bucks or something like, why, why wouldn't I just buy it and just smash it? Oh, I'd feel great. And then I look at my son and uh, at the time of recording this, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's nine months coming up and 10 months old. And I go, if I fall into this pattern of behavior, what kind of dad do I become for him? Right. And it's like, what do I want more? You know, I'll tell you what, I'm not sure if you, if you got kids, grandkids, whatever, but like when, when my little son like laughs and it's like a belly laugh it is the greatest feeling in the world. There's nothing that I've ever like really can really replicate that, like seeing him right, light up right, with joy right. and smile and get, you know, and so being a parent is like the, one of the greatest joys that I have. And so I tap into that, that desire that I have, because there's, there's, there's like this dynamic tension, I think in all human beings, we, we have a primal nervous system that just wants us to be safe, warm, comfortable, and not exert any effort. You know, we can, and literally we live in a world where we can meet our needs at the push of a button, right? But there's something about us as human beings, something inside of us that pulls, that calls, that says, you can be better. You have this potential. You want to be, you know, I don't know if we can quantify it, call it a soul that our soul just wants us to do something with our life. And so we, we have this tension between our primal brain that goes, eat crap, sit on the couch and don't do anything. If you meet all your basic needs without moving a muscle, you've won at life. That's the primal nervous system. And then you have the, this, whatever it is within us, this, this higher being, this, this desire to be something more. And there's a fight between the two. And so when we tap into something like this emotionally compelling reason, we're trying, we are in one sense trying to motivate. Um, well, what it is, I think is more than motivation. It gives meaning to the actions. So let's say maybe it's not super fun for me to say, I'm not going to buy those corn chips and smash the entire bag despite wanting to like, maybe that doesn't feel super fun, but that action has meaning. You know, it's like one workout or one healthy meal doesn't make or break your weight loss, but that action in the context of your emotionally compelling reason, now it has meaning because it's, it's being assigned to a bigger purpose. Right. And so I think we're kind of, in, in a sense, I'm trying to help people go beyond this idea that I must be motivated all, you know, all the time, but we want to, we want to have that well to kind of draw from. Yeah. That emotionally compelling reason that, that, that's a great concept. Can you talk about people's expectations when having a nutrition coach, what are their um, expectations? <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes I joke that my secondary title should be expectation manager. Yeah. And it's in one sense, it's not really the fault of the client. You know, what have we been marketed to for so long? Because this is what people think you need in order to, we got to sell fast and easy, easier than ever before, because we're afraid to tell people the truth. And yet 
this buying into fast and easy is the very reason why we're stuck on like the yo-yo diet cycle and frustrated and think we're a failure because we're like, it's supposed to be fast and easy and it's not what's going on. I've been told a million times over, but every diet program, this is supposed to be fast and easy. And it turns out it's hard, you know? Yeah. And so for me, I really want to be honest with people because by the time they come to me, chances are they've already tried three or four or five or six different things. So I think they come to this realization on their own that, okay, this is, this is going to be a little bit more than just a 21 day fix or a 30 day challenge or a, or a 12 weeks or 90 day or whatever time frame you know, short time frame you want to put on this lifestyle. 180 is 180 days. It's a six month program. Now I used to have shorter programs, but what I found is that they really didn't help people because it's like by month three, you're just starting to build some momentum and to really like transform who you are. Like the best coaching programs in the world are usually between six and 12 months because they recognize how long it actually takes to create this life-changing transformation. And that sounds like a bold goal, but my goal is to do exactly that. I want to create a life-changing transformation in people's lives the same way that a coach did it for me. That happened to me. You know, that person that I was describing that was in South Africa and suffering after South Africa, that is not who I am anymore. And I'm not that person anymore because somebody else helped me. And really like, that's what I want to like pay forward when I'm working with people is I want to help them to create this in themselves too. And that probably gives you the most enjoyment. Oh man. It's, it's why I do it. Like, yes, it pays the bills. And I recognize, I mean, I love the fact that, that my passion is what pays the bills. Now that's not to say like running a business isn't, a, isn't a cakewalk. It's not a picnic. It's, right. it's got up, and two years through a pandemic. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. like it's, we've had our ups and downs. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, but I'm still here because I love what I do. And I just, I just cannot do anything else anymore. Are, are your clients uh, local out there in Alberta or are, are they global? Uh, it's a mixture of both. I would probably say still at least half of my clients come from the province of Alberta. That's the province in Canada that I live in. Right. But the other half, uh, I, I get quite a few American clients as well. Um, and then I have had a few sort of international ones um, in Europe, in Australia. My wife is from Australia. But I will say the, the further the time zone is, like the, the more challenging it can become to work with somebody. That's not sure. to say it can't happen, but if someone's in India, they're like 11 hours ahead of me. Yeah. That's like the, the worst, you know, it's their morning when it's our night and vice versa. Like it's just the worst, you know, so chances, like it, it sounds glamorous to be like, yeah, I have all these international clients, but it can be, it can be a really logistical nightmare. And so um, I would say, generally speaking, my clients are going to be from like the Eastern seaboard to like the West coast kind of thing of North America. Okay. In most but, cases, but everybody can get you over the internet. Oh that's, yeah. That's not absolutely. Yeah. What, what, what excites you, Jonathan, the most going forward? Oh, well, I have a new project that we're just getting off the ground okay. and it's really, it's really, it's in its infancy. And so right now it really just exists as like maybe another informational or educational vehicle to communicate our worldview, but it's called the deep health Academy. And it's like freedom nutrition coaching is kind of sliding in underneath the umbrella of this, but we really want to reshape how we view wellness um, and healthcare in the world, because we have this problem and that is you know, if you have a kidney problem, you see a nephrologist. If you have a heart problem, you see a cardiologist. If you have, you know, a, a knee issue, then you're going to see maybe an orthopedic surgeon. You're, you're seen by the system as like this unit of like the, each discrete parts, essentially to the nephrologist, your kidney, you know, right. you're a human being and everything is connected to everything. And, and 
here you can have these health challenges and people aren't connecting the dots and communicating. And so we want to reshape how people view health. Not only that, but help people to become not just this passive observer. One of my, one of my co-founders in this project, she said, the, the problem that we have is people are just sitting and waiting for that diagnosis to come. That's basically what they're doing. And, and we want to empower people to, to be these active participants in their health, because particularly in the U.S., where you have a for-profit medical system, and not to get conspiratorial, but the reality is, from a business perspective, you make money off sick people who are desperate. That's the system, like yeah. it or not. That's right. not a conspiracy. That's the system you have. Right. And so it's broken. And the only way that you create change is, is you help people get so healthy that they don't need that broken system. Now, I'm re a realist. I study human behavior for a living. And I recognize, you know, our competition is not other coaches, other nutritionists. They're, they're our collaborators. Our competition is Netflix, junk food, alcohol, you know, all the things that just, you know, draw on like our base human behaviors. That's, you know, video games, pornography, all this. This is our competition. Like, right. that's the, you know, and so uh, for, for me, this idea of having at least being one person, one contributor to reshaping how we see health and wellness and healthcare in the future is really what's exciting for me. That does sound exciting. Jonathan, how can people contact you? Um, probably the simplest way is, uh, you can find me on Facebook. So, um, we'll put, we'll link in the show notes, but you could literally send me a friend request. Uh, that's probably, I, I use my personal Facebook profile as like an informal blog. I do have a podcast. It's called between the before and after. And that's where we dive into stories like this, where I want, I, I get to flip the script around. I get to be the interviewer asking the questions and tell other people's inspiring stories. Um, so I really, I really love that. And really you could just Google freedom, nutrition, coaching. And you'll find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, um, all the major platforms. I have a presence there. Um, but uh, really, okay. I, I'd say like my Facebook personal profile, like send me a friend request and be like, hey, I heard you on, on you know, it's a rap with rap. And uh, I right. really loved your story that, you know, that lights me up. I love that. Great. Now, Freedom Nutrition Coaching, is that is that dot com? Is that a website or? Uh, yes. Uh, Freedom Nutrition Coach dot com. Coach dot com. All right. I'm going to put that in the. Uh in the podcast uh, notes. And yeah. I want to thank you, Jonathan, for sharing your amazing story. And I, I wish you all the success in the future, uh, helping people to getting on the right path to a healthy lifestyle, considering their nutrition and weight. Uh, comments yeah, yeah. and suggestions to improve the podcast are welcome. You can uh, email us at it's a wrap with wrap at gmail.com. We have a website. You can sign up for our email list. It's a wrap with wrap.com. Uh, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group, and the group is growing uh, as we speak very, uh, very nicely. It's called It's a Wrap with Rap. We're on Instagram, It's a Wrap with Rap podcast, and yes, all the episodes are on YouTube. It's a Wrap with Rap, the podcast uncut. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe, and for now, it's a wrap. <laughs>